Well, good evening to you all. Thank you very much uh, for coming. There are, I think it's fair to say, very few people who seem to define an entire genre of uh, television programming, but tonight's very special guest is one such person. Throughout the decades, his programs were what is now known as appointment to view television. It wasn't when uh, he started making television. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the broadcasting great that is Sir Michael Parkinson. Very nice to see you. I'm sure it's a complete treat for them. It is an entire treat for me to have you sitting here. When you, you were standing there just watching that yes. little montage yes. of clips, what occurs to you as you see the decades fly what, by? What here? a lovely job it's been. How marvellous it is to meet all your heroes. And in the case of somebody like Muhammad Ali, to meet somebody who the rest of the world wanted to meet. I mean, there are some very wonderful people among that, that montage. But there's one man there that was so special. I mean, so that he was it's like he was a Martian. I remember when he arrived on the show for the first time, there was a gasp from the audience. I mean, it was as if he'd stepped off another planet, off a rocket ship. And he walked on, beautifully glided on, and sat down, and he couldn't get his backside into the chair. I mean, he was so big. So we had to find a chair big enough to accommodate his bum. And we found it upstairs, head of life entertainment, Bill Cotton. <laughs> Who didn't have a chair, he had a throne, actually. And that's how we started the show. And the first of four interviews <coughs> with Muhammad Ali, that was in 1971, I think. You, your right. first series ran from 71 to 82. Yes. How did that initial series come about? Uh, well, I, I was working at Granada and doing some cinema and odd things like that, and an afternoon show for Thames Television, really freelancing around. And I got this call from, from Bill Cotton saying, I'd like to come and talk to you. And we, we'd met, and he said, look, I've got this break, 10 weeks in the summer. He said, I can't promise you anything at all. But, you know, let's, let's try. He wanted to do a kind of a variety talk show, uh, and I wasn't too attracted by that. So we didn't argue. I just found a producer who, like me, didn't want to do that kind of show, Richard Druitt, dear Richard. And we, uh, so together we devised this show, which mixed comedy and entertainment with, of course, serious interview. And, uh, and it, it kind of worked. Um, and I, I mean, nobody said anything to me after 10 weeks. I could just get walking in a building and doing a show. So that's the way the BBC was in those days. After 10 years, they said goodbye. I said, fine, OK. But you said you, d you didn't really want to do that kind of show. No. In those days, what did you perceive that kind of show to be? I didn't. There, there wasn't one kind of like that, although there were magazine programs that sort of did it, the late night lineup, that kind of thing. I wanted to make sure late night lineup, the way they interview people, and also bring in, because you know, I, I love showbiz, comedians and people like that, but, but not have them as a separate spot, but have them intermingling so, to see if we could genuinely get a conversation going. I suppose that's what it was. And there wasn't a kind of precedent for it in, in that sense, not for a big Saturday night show. And, and you know, we had that entire problem you always have, all people in this room will understand it, that you know, if you don't have the rating, you don't get the big yanks. That's the problem. And, uh, and that was our, our problem. I mean, our first guest was, was Terry Thomas, hardly like to bring the American producers flocking to your door. Uh, and we sat down and decided the man at the time who would impress them, the American agents, was Orson Welles, and a great hero of mine, and Richards too. And uh, off we went to sort of persuade him. He was filming in Spain. He spent a lot of time filming in Spain. I don't think he ever film, finished a film. He started in Spain. But we talked to him, and he said that he would come over for a vast amount of money, we thought. But anyway, that was OK. And, uh, but, and the, uh, uh, the only other thing he, he wanted to guarantee the deal was that we took out four seats from British Airways flight to lay a mattress down so he might sleep and rest his back. Well, we fell for this, so we persuaded God knows how British Airways to do this. Whereupon he got on the airplane, looked at the buttress, and then went and sat on the next seat to it. <laughs> <laughs> Which was an indication of the kind of you know, deal that he got in his mind. And I was in my dressing room having waited, I don't know, years, I suppose, to meet Orson Welles all my life. And then knock on the door, and, and there he was, in a black sombrero, black silk cravat, black cloak. So, uh, Red lining, and he said, "My name is Wells." I said, "Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Mike Parkinson. May I come in?" I said, well, "Of course, of course, go." And I got on my desk. I got the the sheet of paper which I'd taken about three years to to, to produce this, the <laughs> definitive interview with this great yes. man. You know how it goes. Yes, there will never be a better one. And no. There never ever will be. No, you will never be interviewed like this. <laughs> and he took the lot of his cloak and then he looked at back. He said, "What's that?" And he knew what he was. And I said, it's, it's my question list for you, sir. Uh-huh. He said, well, may I see it? And I said, yes. 
So he repeated it up and he went like that. He said, dropped it in the waste bin like that. He said, how many talk shows have you done? <laughs> and I said, three. He said, I've done rather more than that, he said. So let's go and talk. Um, and talk he did and it was magical. When I first looked at that, the thing that, that struck me was, well, they don't make them like that anymore. Because, you know, it, 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 what was also interesting was the amount of time mm. that he had. Now, mm. in an encounter, and we all know there, it, there is a sort of reciprocity in that. You know, mm. you have to be willing to give the person space and the person has to be willing to fill it's it. It's a deal. If that was only your third, was that only your third show? Yes. Was that nerve-wracking for you? To... Terrifying. Yes. Absolutely terrifying. But you're not allowed to... No. Show that, are you? No. You have to sort of steal yourself and pretend you do it every day. Awesome, well, who's he? <laughs> you know, uh, it's, 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 all, it's all an act, really. But with somebody like him, I mean, if you treated him seriously, he treated you seriously. Yes. And he loved talking about that period in Hollywood. He loved, loved talking about anything, you know, the manners of the Spanish peasants. You know, he just goes on and on and on. And he was one of those wonderfully eloquent men. And he had, he had thrown I mean, your notes in the bin, as you told us, but did you, did you go back through the things that you had crafted over those three years of anticipation, or did you really go with the flow? Well, I mean, the entire basis of the interview is what you do beforehand. You know, you have to do the research. You have to. And you might only use, I don't know, 10 15%. But by God, you can guarantee that if you didn't do that, the one of that area that you didn't cover would come up and you'd look stranded and you'd start looking like a goldfish, you know. So you have to do all that. And I never once came to the end, I don't think, of my research. And with any interview I did, I always sifted it, to, but in the, in the end I got the beginning, middle and end as I'd imagined it in my mind. Again, not, I mean, you can't do that with Billy Conley. You couldn't do it with Muhammad Ali. You couldn't do it with Spike Milligan, you know, but you had to at the same time go through exactly the same process all the time just to quieten yourself, that when you walked on, you knew this person. In particular, with that <clears throat> interview, what did you learn from it? I mean, that was a real baptism of fire. What did you come away from it and think, from now on, I will? I, I think that it just had to establish what I'd, I'd always believed that the interview was about, that it's all about the preparation. I think that's what it was. I mean, I was never nervous of anybody in an interview, providing I'd been given the time to prepare it beforehand. And that way you can cope with most anything, drunks or whatever it might be. A bit of a problem, we might talk about that later. But, but nonetheless, uh, I just have this, this, this routine. I was, my researchers, uh, we'd pick them very carefully. And we'd pick them, I would pick them as much for what they could write, as well as what they uncovered. Because when you get a piece that we get a huge, you imagine the research for, for, for awesome Wells, if you really went back through everything he'd ever done. So you, you wanted a person who could edit to do the research for you. And then you wanted a person who could write it in an attractive way. So it wasn't a chore. It wasn't just a list of facts. And more than that, what I used to say to myself, at the end of it all, I want you to lead into my intro. I might not use it, but just to see that you're getting the right shape in your mind. And that way, I felt comfortable going on because I knew they're all, and all of us were knowing which way it's going to go. Um, part of any glittering career such as yours is not just all that uh, groundwork that you put in and all the hard work that no, probably quite often nobody actually even sees, but you know it's there and it they underpins an, an interview. But also, it is timing. I mean, you, you came in to television and you started to interview uh, people at a time when we were talking about old Hollywood who didn't, they didn't care much about TV, they didn't necessarily understand it, and to that extent it was a, a, a gift, Am I, is that well, fair? Well, no, I think that's fair. I mean, they weren't let out by the studios. I mean, the Hollywood studios for a great deal of time actually banned their people going on television, on television because television was the devil's spawn. Yes. What is more, it wasn't going to last very long either. Yeah. Um, they soon changed their mind about that. And I just happened to coincide, quite coincidentally, um, my, growing up, my passion was Hollywood. I mean, I just go to movies, bogey, and all, but my inspiration, Lauren Bacall, I, wanted, well, I lusted after Lauren Bacall. <laughs> and when she kissed me, I nearly fainted. And, and, and all this, but, but they're all my heroes, and I knew a lot about them. You know, I didn't need the research in a sense, because I knew them. And so that, that coincided with the studio saying, okay, fine, yeah, let's use this new medium as, as to promote these people. And when they, uh, and you'd only ever, the audience had only ever seen them 30 feet high on the screen. And when you actually said, ladies and gentlemen, Fred Astaire, and he appeared, I mean, come on. Oh. I mean, and it, they, you could hear them go, oh. You know, it was, it, it was, it was wonderful, exciting, you know? Um, and nowadays, of course, everybody's famous. And nobody's got a private life. 
So the, the, we know every inch about everything about them. They walk down the stairs. Brad Pitt. Oh, I know a lot about him. I, yes. I went and put the guy down our street. Looks like him, and all that sort of stuff. But with then in those days, they were different. They were absolutely extraordinary creatures. And you have said, as we know, you interviewed Muhammad Ali four times, and you. I heard you say on the radio as well the other day. You were talking about it on the T Today program. Mm. You said there was when he walked into the studio, there was a sort of audible gasp mm. that went mm. went around the room. Mm. And you said to me a minute ago, well, I, I was never really nervous. With him, no nerves? You didn't feel a sense of nerves as he, as he walked down the stairs? I was excited. Right. I was really properly excited. But as I said, I think, you know, there are certain people that, that the world wants to meet, really. And, I mean, Mandela would be another one, wouldn't he? You would think just a Who few you did, and you went I there, did. yes. Exactly. And he did this wonderful thing on me, actually. I, I, I sensed he was in the room we were setting up. And he said, where is the famous BBC interviewer? And I turned around there and I said, here, sir. I have to tell you, he said, I'm slightly deaf. I said, I hope, sir, you'll hear my questions. And he looked at me and smiled. He said, I'll hear the ones I want to answer. <laughs> and I thought, how many times have we caught it on a journey like that? Fifteen, love, you know. We're, we're going to take a look at, at some real classics now. Let's start with, with Tony Blair. Um, yeah. How He was the first serving Prime Minister who'd ever been on a Parkinson show, am I yes, saying that? That's right. What were the circumstances of the booking? How did you get him? Uh, I don't know. I, I can't. They booked him. And it was a good time to book him. I mean, the war and all that sort yes. of thing. And, and, and he was an interesting man. I mean, he liked talking. And people who like talking are good to interview. Yes. Because they often speak without thinking. Uh, which is what he did there. He yes. just said that thing about praying, and I thought, oh, here we go. Mm -hmm. So when you move, so you have to listen as well as you know, construct the interview. Um, in the Shirley MacLaine clip, the audience <laughs> laughed at something that the camera operator didn't quite catch. Had you did you lean over to touch her? Did I you? did. You I did. did. Did you do that deliberately? Of course. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to have touched her. I touched her arm and. Felt the electricity shoot through my body. <laughs> no, but, no, the, no, but I mean, the no. point I'm getting at is you were asking her about whether you're a male chauvinist, she thought you're a male chauvinist yeah. pig, and you then, so you deliberately patronised her by doing a sort of there, there Patronising at all. I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the kind of person who actually does like sort of touching people. I don't sit back away from them like that. I go toward them. In an interview, that's terribly interesting. You know this as well of as course. I do. The body language to an interviewer is very, very important. And the more you lean in, the more you engage the eyes, the more chance you have of getting something said and done. And so that was a situation where I had to go forward and, and look at her because the question was not pertinent. It's a bit cheeky. But I knew what, what she was like because I'd seen her before. She's a very witty, very funny woman, yes. and I adored her. And you very deliberately had gotten rid of what they had in all the American chat shows was the desk. Oh, well. Because you wanted to, you know, in any in interview, there is a, a completely artificially created intimacy. Absolutely. Here you are, my friend. Here you are. Let's chat the way we'd be exactly. chatting. So not having the desk there kind of gave you a, a physical proximity that was an advantage. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you could say, well, the, the great sub... Uh, American talk show hosts who actually, you know, wrote the, the the dialogue. I suppose they never bothered about interviewing. I mean, Johnny Carson was not an interviewer; he was a comedian. Yes. And he didn't mind the desk between him. He yes. didn't see it. He saw it as someone could put his scripts on and could see the joke or whatever it might be. But when you're interviewing people, you can't have any anything that bows you, takes you away from that that intimacy that you hope develops. I mean, with some people, you can't do it. Some people find it offensive. But generally speaking. That is the only way you're going to reach in a totally false situation. Lights into your eyes, yeah. make upon in the old days, sweating it like a dog. The only way that you can actually convince them that they are actually going to enjoy this. And we're doing that. It's a great, it's a great con, actually. The, <laughs> the moment when Noel Gallagher said to you... Wasn't that wonderful, though? Wonderful. Extraordinary. When he said, where did you get all this? That is the moment, <laughs> surely that every interviewer lives for, when they feel that they have reached originality, when you feel that you are not just stirring around the great anecdotal pot yes. <laughs> that people have heard in other circumstances in other places. That's right. And, and again, it's, you have to do the work. You just have to, because otherwise you then get away with it. I mean, I had Barry Manilow. I was talking to Manilow, and, uh, and, and he said, uh, I said, you behave very badly when you were young. No, I didn't. I said, you did. I said, you used to ring up restaurants you were going to and, and insist the management kick the people over there out, and so you could have the restaurant to yourself. I didn't. I said, you did. He said, where did you get that from? I said, your autobiography. <laughs> 
I mean, may shut up after that. Um, <laughs> as, as you will know, and as I know, it is often the case these days, in fact, I think virtually always the case on, on television uh, interview programmes or, or entertainment shows that people appear on, that there are agreed questions. People know exactly where they're mm. going, and the publicists have spoken to the researchers and the producers, and everything's mm. agreed beforehand. I, have, I didn't see your interview with Woody Allen, and that is, um, when I watched these clips, that was the first time I'd seen a part of it. He was obviously coming on at a, at a time when the temperature that surrounded him was rather febrile. Did you have to gird yourself to go there mentally with him? No, not at all. I mean, uh, two, two things. We were told by his agent, if I mentioned, even mentioned this guy, he'd walk off. Uh, well, I, and so my producer, I'd be bothered. He said, no, no, we don't deal like that. You know, come on, he's coming on, and Michael will ask him whatever he wants. Yes. Well, I'm telling you, all that sort of st stuff went on. And he did say to me, before we went on, oh, you know, you just keep it sweet or whatever. And I said, well, you know, it, it'll be okay. You know, I'm not going to get nasty or anything like that. Uh, but you had to ask the question, of course. But what I didn't want to do to make it seem less prying and less sort of salacious was to actually find a reason, that, a journalistic reason, which actually justified the question. And what I discovered, of course, was true, was that uh, the affair that he'd had actually ruined his relationship east-west coast of America. Only the central belt, or might be the other way around, but certainly it actually affected the, the number of people who went to see a Woody Allen film in America. Yes, yes. And that's where I brought it in, because you just saw the end of it. Before that, the preamble had been, you know, your career in America has, has suffered because of this. Right, so let's talk about the reasons why. Now, there's a journalistic reason, and a good one then, for me to then ask the questions about the relationship. And the other thing was that you could tie that with his decision to work in Europe more, because in Europe people just didn't give a damn. And how was he afterwards? He was how not. Was he did not stay around for a drink or anything like that. <laughs> no. And his agent was beside himself. But I mean, we just said, look. Uh, his agent said, "Oh, you, you, we didn't. You didn't sign the agreement." I said, "We signed everything." I mean, come on. And and I said to to him, you know, I'm sure that nothing terrible is going to happen. People will enjoy that. You know, it's a good question. He answered it well. And, you know, he's, a, he's an extraordinary man. I mean, he actually dealt with it brilliantly by dissipating yes. it with a laugh. Exactly. He timed it perfectly, Precise. delivered it perfectly, and from that point on, people were, when somebody makes you laugh, you're kind of on their side, even if you don't <laughs> want to be. He, so. he, he did it brilliantly. That's right, he did. Meg Ryan, not so brilliantly. Ah. Um, <laughs> I tried to watch that interview again yesterday. <laughs> I, I actually couldn't watch it. I was, my palms were sweating. <laughs> I want to know where the rot set in, <laughs> because when I was watching it as it went out on television the first time, I didn't under I, I couldn't really understand it. I couldn't unpick it. I'm imagining things must have happened before she even walked onto the set. Well, what had happened in, in, in a sense was she was right at the end of promoting a film which wasn't a very good film. It didn't make it at the box office, and and she was sick of this long tour and you know the criticism of the movie and all that. I think she'd also just split with uh, Russell Crowe. And that hadn't helped quite, obviously. And I never used to talk to people before, except to say, hi, how are you, before they came on the set. On this occasion, I had to go to a dressing room and went out there and said hi to her. And she was sitting in one side of the dressing room, staring at the wall, and the entourage was the other side, staring at the wall. And I thought, mm, this is going to be cozy. <laughs> uh, so I just said to her, and you know, introduced myself. And uh, she wasn't up. She wasn't up for it at all. But the point was, and that, I understand that, and a lot of people are nervous and all that sort of thing, and your job is to make them less nervous. But the thing that really did it was that I had on uh, the guests before, and she was sitting behind the set, watching it on a monitor there, so she knew damn well what was going on. And when she came on, she just simply ignored the two women, uh, the good fashion girls they used to be, or whatever their names were. And, uh, and she came on and just ignored them, and just sat down. And so she was being rude. She moved a chair, so she was like front on to me, and they were sort of looking around the corner. And then she started, I said, did you enjoy that fashion item? Uh, what fashion item was that? Well, she knew which fashion item it was. She was pretending she had fallen asleep or something. Yeah. And she started to get under my skin. She really did. I mean, she was rude to people. And I can't bear that. You know, they've done a job. They've set the, the, the tone for her, and here we are. And she's just not cooperating. What does she think she is? And so that's, that was my mood. I got cross with her. And so, so, so we had a little, a little sort of a disagreement. Um, and, you know, and there was a point where I was going to pull out long before that. But then I thought, no, I'll keep going, because it might have one of those moments 
that people talk about, like the emu and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> they come out of the blue. But anyway, so, I mean, that was it. And I just was being honest with myself. I just showed my disapproval of it, that's all. And we don't send Christmas cards to each other and anything like that. <laughs> and these things happen. I mean, that's the, 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 good, the great thing about the talk show was it was so unpredictable. There's no script. Well, you know this, we do not no, You do all the research in the world, and it does depend, if, do you like that person? Can you get on with that? Yes. Are they trying? You know, forgive anything if they're trying. Um, let's, I want to talk about the craft of the interview, but it, it strikes me that if I were Sir Michael Parkinson, I wouldn't forgive myself if I didn't ask this question, which is that <laughs> recently it's been in the, the news, there's been, a, you know, there's been a loss of, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about this memoir, the memoir you've written about Ali, yeah. but also people have been raking through the coals of yeah. past interviews, and you and I were just chatting about this before we came on. Uh, infamously, uh, Helen Mirren was interviewed by you in 1975, and you asked about stripping off. Now, it, it, it strikes me that every interview that takes place takes place in the moment well, of, of the, the encounter between the That's two fine. people. And if you're encountering somebody in 1975, I would say you're probably going to ask them different questions from what you would ask them. Hmm. Now, she subsequently came on later and was interviewed. She was. You yeah. did, you sort of, I don't know if you kissed, but you made up. Well, we certainly made up. Yeah, that yeah. was in 2006 or something like that. And we decided that we'd both like to look at the show again, and we did. And we just cringed. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I reminded myself what I thought. I mean, I, I, I didn't handle it very well at all. But it was when she walked on with a feather ball on. But really what I was thinking, because I was, what, 40? She was about just 20, something like that. What I was really thinking, I was like a dad saying, you're not going out like that, are you? <laughs> you know, it was that kind of feeling. It wasn't so sexist. What did they know, these people? So, you know, so from that point on, again, it was honest television, honest reaction, you know. And she's made the best of it because, and quite rightly so, because I was rude to her and not nice to her. Uh, and similarly, she, I think, also said to me, you know, neither of us did well there, did we? And I said, no. And we left it at that. But the kind of journalism, I mean, how far are we going to go back? 50 years it is, eh? Come on, we've all changed. But not according to some columnists, we haven't all well, changed. Um, let's talk a little bit about the craft of the interview and the relationship between, you said you, you, know, you would ask uh, researchers to, to make you feel like they were doing the lead-in. Would you, would you make, I mean, it was interesting with Noel Gallagher there, would you make calls, would you talk to friends of people you were going to interview, or would you rely solely on what you were given through right. the sort of professional research? We rely solely on the, on the uh, evidence of what my, my, my team had given me, absolutely. I, I mean, if, I might, you know, certain times I'd say to Frosty, have you heard so-and-so? And if he said, yes, I'd say any tips. Or, but, I mean, there is a kind of market in that with more people do interviews. Yeah. They, they exchange information. But no, generally speaking, I just relied upon the team. And you, you mentioned, you know, that idea that when, when it goes into uncharted territory is the great moment. There can be times when, I mean, I'm thinking particularly of um, comedians, uh, you know, per performers. <laughs> they can be particularly hard to handle because <clears throat> they, they like being in charge. They feed off laughter and to hell with your plan anyway. I mean, mm. how, how did, did you approach interviewing comedians differently? I, I approached them quite uh, carefully. I mean, I, I, I didn't have on comedians who couldn't think. You know what I mean? I'm saying the, who, yes. just guys who wrote the, got the gag book yes. out. And, yeah. I've heard this one. I've heard that one. Yeah. When you talk to Billy Connolly or Spike Billy, Connolly, you've got a brain working there. You know, they don't have to have gags to so make people be entertained or, or laugh. I enjoyed the company of comedians, and I, I worked with an awful lot of them, all the Americans and all the great British ones, and they were my, some of my favorite times, they really were, because it's, it was something like Connolly, he was so refreshing, you know, he really was. I'm 71, I'm coming back from Glasgow, and the cab driver was, was taking us to the airport, and he said, uh, uh, do you know the begin? And I said, no, no, I get airport. He said, no, what? He said, Green's Playhouse. He said, look at that, and he said, uh, great, uh, the big in, Billy Connolly, the great Northern Welly Boot Show. He said, that's your man, have him on your show, you like a laugh. I said, I do it on the airport, airport. And he's talking to the parade of shops, and he came back with this CD, which is Billy with the banana boots on, you know, the yeah. thing. He said, yeah, have that on me, because you're going to use him, I know you are. Put it down at home, three weeks, two weeks later, Andrew Merlis boy said, Dad, have you listened to that? I said, no. He said, well, what bit you can understand? I'm not sure what she <laughs> said. He's brilliant. And so we rang him up, put him on, and that was in 1971. And from that point on, he took off. And after that, what, 15, 20 times we did it, and became a friend. It's sad now to see Billy, but, you know, he's still working. You know, he's still defying everything that's happened to him. And, and he's, 
He's a, a remarkable man, he really is. Watching the Billy Connolly, I'm reminded that was the first time I had ever seen a proper Scottish person on oh. the telly when I watched him on, on your show. And that in itself was magnificent if yeah. you're a Glasgow girl. See somebody speaking yeah. like you almost spoke on the telly. Yeah. You, you say that you had him on for about sort of 20 odd times Aye. after that and that Aye, you became right. friends. Was, was that unusual or, or did you tend to sort of spark I, up? I didn't never went out of my way to sort of meet, you know, people or make a, a, a lifestyle of, of chatting up people on my show and inviting them home and all that. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, but one or two people, I just, we just, I just felt close to them, and we, it was just a natural thing. We became friends. The same with Billy. I mean, I think he was grateful for the, the assistance we gave him in the early years, and the continuing support. But nonetheless, that wasn't the driving force in our relationship. Uh, he came down to live one, two doors away from me on the on the Thames, and, and that was fun too. I mean, imagine having Connolly to or borrow the old cup of sugar from Billy Connolly. It'd be rather nice. He'd have to make an excuse every day to go and see him. He's just a very fine and, and you know, the, the people I really like are people like Connolly who are genuinely funny. They don't need a gag writer. They don't need a script or anything like that. They're funny men. They have a funny bone which runs right the way through their bodies. How much did you know about what he was going to do when he came on? Oh, nothing at all. It didn't matter. I mean, it just didn't matter. You could do all the research in the world, but he'd take off. One thing was, ah, away we go. And you could see him sometimes say something in the story, an anecdote or whatever, and you think, ah, here we go. Now we're going to do a routine on this one. And of course he did. You know, he's just, it, was, it was the unexpected quality of Billy which made him wonderful, like Spike, Spike Milligan. I mean, you could do all the research. You had no idea what Spike was going to do when he came on. He didn't know himself, you know, <laughs> the point about him. But there's that lovely feeling of walking, walking the narrow tightrope with people like that. Um, Kenneth Williams was a... Was a, a ah, well, Kenneth yes. Williams, they said in his mem memoirs, when he first met, met me, he thought I was a crass working-class Yorkshireman <laughs> and that I wasn't worth a ton of day. By the time he came to the end of the book, I was his new best friend, I and mean, friend forever. He was whimsical, let's just put us that way. But I liked Kenneth, and again, he was a wonderful anecdotalist. He, he, told, he told wonderful stories. Did you feel, I mean, great box office, great television, but did you feel that you got to know him, to under, indeed to understand him? I did he know himself? Mm -hmm. I don't think he did. He was a very troubled man in many, many ways. And a lot of comedians are, you know, I mean, aren't they? I mean, they... It's interesting when Billy, you see, of all people, you, you look at Billy and it's a great class region, you know, I can handle himself, all that tough guy. And I was in Sydney watching him work at the Sydney Opera House. And as he turned away, I caught a tear in his, in his face, in his eye. I thought, well, that's very, that's, I can't be crying. Anyway, we, afterwards we went for dinner and I said, can I ask you a question? I said, were you crying on stage today? It was not note about his dad. And he said, yeah, just a wee moment. And I said, what was that about? And he said, one day I'll tell you. Mm. And he didn't tell me, he told his wife. And she wrote the book about it. He'd been assaulted as a child. And that was the, the stuff coming out, you know, the memory of his dad. But it wasn't the funny memory, it was, it was something else altogether. And that's the weird thing, isn't it, about the human mind, how it kind of protects things and then betrays it. That's why comics do it, I think, to find out about themselves or get rid of something. You know, it was a very odd moment. Have there been moments, and of course you, you would be sitting there with an audience and as you say, with the lights and you are working and you are aware you're making a television programme, but have there ever been moments when in reality as, as a human being, rather than as the professional interviewer, you have been profoundly moved by something that somebody has said? Very much so. And in particular, there was an interview I did with Professor Jacob Bernofsky. Now, can you imagine this today? Jacob Bernofsky did an hour and a quarter, one man show, prime time, watched by about eight million people. I mean, come on, things were a bit different in those days. Yes. Um, but toward the end of this extraordinary performance by him, talking about Auschwitz, where his family were murdered, he came to the concluding part where they went to the pit where the ashes were thrown, all that sort of thing. And he told me that he had to make this statement to camera, just one take, to sum up the entire thing. And he said, I had nothing in my mind at all until all of a sudden, all of the Cromwell's words came to me. I beseech you in the bowels of Christ. Think it possible. You might have been mistaken. <laughs> oh, I've gone. You've gone. I don't blame I mean, you for going. Yeah. And when he said this to you there, did the same oh. Yes. And we, 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 <clears throat> we took it out to of a, of a, do a clip show, right? I mean, I just wanted to prove to people that, you know, the, the, it, there are moments when you think, what? And 
the problem was that when we took it out of context, it, of course it worked, it was very powerful indeed. Of course he was a wonderful performer as well as anything else. But what we couldn't do was follow it. I couldn't come up here. Hey, no, there's no, there's no closer to that. No. There's none at all. No. Uh, and we didn't want to end on that, uh, like that, because it was just too profound and too upsetting. And so I remember that a week, a, a time before, sometime before, I'd interviewed uh, Itzhak Perlman and Larry Adler. Oh. And they had performed quite unrehearsed, Summertime, written by George Gershwin, of course. So here we got three Jews performing this extraordinary thing. And so what we did, we just tagged that on the end, and it just worked beautifully. Just the music had come to the thought and fade into thank you and good night. You're talking there about, you say that was, uh, with Bronowski, that was an hour and 15 minutes of primetime television. Can we imagine it now? Well, of course, we can't imagine it now. And I, years ago, I came across, I was looking for it again yesterday, and I couldn't find it, but I came across an interview, and this must have been, obviously been the very early 70s, with W.H. Auden. Yes. Now, we wouldn't get that now on primetime <laughs> television, but no. what do you remember of that encounter? I remember the, the creases in his face. He had this extraordinary deep ridges. And I might have imagined this, but I did say to my producer afterwards, do you know he's got dust on the ledges? <laughs> and and he, I don't know whether it's makeup or not, you know, it just got stuck there. But he had these little particles. <laughs> Uh, well, he didn't know what he was doing in that sense. I mean, he'd never been on a talk show like that before at all. But he came with Johnny, Johnny Gilgood. And, uh, and they, they were wonderful. But again, you see, I mean, nobody was surprised that that was the Saturday night show at all. It just, that's it. Fine, go for it. See, entertain us. All of these names just roll off your tongue. And I'm just looking at every single face here. Not mm. a single one of them that you wouldn't want to hear from. And yet, you, am I right in thinking you never got Sinatra? Never. Nobody did. Nobody did. What was the problem? It was his fame. <laughs> he didn't need to do it. And, and he always imagined, I, mean, I used to talk to Sammy Khan about this, Sammy, the songwriter who you know, was very close to Sinatra. He said he won't talk, he just thinks that they, they're going to bring up the mafia, all that association and all that, which was true. You know, he did belong to the mob at one point in his career, and throughout most of his career. So he, he thought, you know, I don't want any of that. He didn't need it. I mean, did he need publicity? Did he act? I mean, he was the greatest star in the world. People forget how big a star he was. You know, and, and, and he just didn't want to do it. It's a pity because, you know, he was bright and intelligent and all that. And I got, Sammy got an introduction to me. He said to me one day, I was staying with Sammy in Hollywood and having a holiday. And he said, well, this is Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Khan. Oh, Sammy Khan, I yeah. beg your pardon. Yeah, and uh, Sammy, well, he wrote all of uh, yeah. uh, Sinatra's second period, so to speak. Yeah. After he got divorced, Sammy, from his first wife, he made millions doing the Comply With Me album and all that, and worked with Jimmy Van Houston, a very rich period in, in Sinatra's recording career. And so it became very close. And he said, I'm going to take you to a party tonight. Frank's having a few friends around. And he said, uh, and I'll introduce you, and then, you know, he'll know about you. And when he comes to London, maybe, I mean, he'll do a show. So we went around there, and he was there. Hi, uh, Frank is a Mike Parkinson talk show. I've talked to you. Frank said, hi, Mike, how are you? Good, fine. And then uh, Frank said, Sammy went off to some party, another party. And I was left alone in a room where I only knew me and, and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and I was wandering around and looking like a pickpocket. And I thought, I'm going home now. <laughs> so I sort of wandered out, and I sought out my friend, my hero, Mr. Sinatra, I said, Mr. Sinatra, thank you very much for the invitation. I said, but I've got to go now. Hi, Alec, okay, sure, sure. He said, see you in London, David. <laughs> <laughs> I felt really made an impression on this guy. But, but I never got him, but nobody ever did. But what a, what a performer, what a star. Could you give us your thoughts on the, I mean, given that you are in that unique position of having started in 71 and having gone throughout the decades, yeah. different times at different yeah. broadcasters, but yeah. you were doing essentially the same job, yeah. you, you would have seen in that great sort of swoop, the arc of your career, the change, the change that came about, as you say, because people now, you know, we can watch what Brad and Angelina are having for lunch on their Instagram account. You know, stars are no longer shielded, uh, sort of shrouded in the mystique that they once were. Plus, you've got the publicists. Plus, you might have somebody coming onto your show in 2008, 2009, who has spent three days doing a junket at Claridge's, and then they get makeup comes on, they get wheeled on, and you, ex you know, we all expect yeah. them to be fresh and wonderful. Yes. Is that, was that noticeable to you throughout the decades, that the landscape had changed? It changed, it changed I think, really basically, 
later on in my career. When I came back in the in, uh, 1990s and 2000, it had fundamentally changed. It didn't mean to say that you couldn't do a good show. You could. But these, those people were, were interfering more and more. But we had a golden rule, and you can call it arrogance or not. We wouldn't deal with them. I mean, if they wanted to impose any kind of any kind of rule about what we could do or say, we said, we don't want them on the show. Why should we? You know? But if, you're the, you, if you are the, the, the show around that everybody wanted to be on, then, of course, they were snookered. So what, are they going to go to some other show which doesn't have the rating? And I, by that time, the reputation was, was such that we could get more or less what we wanted. But I, but I see it as a problem. But also, too, you know, I mean, I've been in television 60 years now. It's a long, long time. You know, and if you ask me about the changes that I've seen, I mean, come on. I mean, it's, it was like a sort of a broken down old bus to start with. You know, I mean, nobody knew what they were doing. I left Fleet Street to go to Granada Television, arrived there about two years after Coronation Street. And, uh, and I said, I, I, I can't produce. And they said, now can we? I said, we don't know what we're doing any at all. And we used to have a wonderful time there making it all up. I think the other thing, too, that, that I was lucky, we were lucky about, you know, came through that generation. Uh, of television, where Granada took over the north and Sidney Bernstein ruled the, ruled the roost. And the place was full of journals and things like that. It wasn't just that the people were, were like-minded. It was, it was just that the people who were bossing us, I and mean, if I think about Dennis Foreman at Granada, if I think about Paul Fox at the BBC, these were guys that had a war. So they'd come out of a war, they'd know what was the worst kind of aspect of human behavior was about. They knew they had an ambition to make a different Britain and all that. They were very used to commanding people and expecting people to jump when they, when they looked their way. And they were terrifying in many ways, but by God, they created wonderful television. So people, when we talk about that period, we, we kind of discount that quality that was there in charge and inspiration that was there for any young person with an ambition at all. And I feel that today, young people coming into the business, which has changed radically, as we know, but they don't have that same kind of guidance. What was your ambition? I mean, you say you, you'd, you were at, uh, you'd come from Yorkshire, you'd worked on local papers, you worked at the Manchester Guardian, then you'd come to the Daily Express on Fleet Street. Mm. When you took your first steps into television, mm. I mean, I understand that you wouldn't have known the possibilities of television, yeah. but what were your personal ambitions? I wanted to be a film star, basically. I wanted to be, a, no, I wanted to be famous. Of course I did, like you all do. I mean, I didn't, I didn't deliberately seek a, a path there because there wasn't one that I could find. I produced, I produced for a few years, and I enjoyed that immensely. And then Granada had this idea that everybody who appeared on television should be a producer, director, for all that, you know. So you were the ultimate all-rounder. And, uh, and I just sort of took to it. I enjoyed it very much indeed. Uh, and I did my very first showbiz interview. I can't imagine, actually. Have you got that? Is my it with, my with first... Mick Jagger? Yeah. We have. Before you say another word, let's watch it. Wait until you've seen this. Yeah, yes. I mean, I mean the, the thing is that, that uh, <laughs> the 60s were wonderful. I mean, in Granada, particularly, it was at the epicenter of the Cultural Revolution. All the writers, all the actors, Finney, Courtney, all those people. It was just centered in, in, in Granada land, basically, which Sydney uh, had, had invented. And it was just very exciting, but we were not aware really what, what really was happening until much later. Then we couldn't remember what had gone on in any case. But, and George Best arrived, and all that. It was very, very, very exciting. And I was producing one, every, and we used to have a music spot because the music was dominating everything. Our, our group, our, our local group, when I first joined, were the Beatles. We didn't know they were the Beatles, nor did they. And one day John Lennon said, uh, John Lennon said, uh, we're off to London to make a record. And when they came back, the 20,000 kids chasing them through Manchester, and the world stood on its head. And that was the Cultural Revolution, the beginning of it. And so it was very heady, heady times. What was I going to say? I was going to say, let's take a look at the Mick Jagger. Oh, no, well, let, me, let me set it up first. Okay, well, all right. Because, because uh, Johnny Hamp, who's wonderful. Never tries to interview an interviewer. <laughs> No, because it, it needs just this tiny bit of setting up. Johnny Hamp, the producer, was booking all the acts. Sent, sent, rang me up, said, there's a great group down here. Called the Rolling Stones. He said, I think they're going to be wonderful. Also, he said, I think that Mick Jagger was their leader. He's been to university. He'd make a good interview, so interview him. I, on the day as a producer, I got no interviews. They're all out of some story. So I interviewed Jagger. It's the first time I'd ever interviewed on television. And this is my only claim to fame. What did you make of him afterwards? What, I mean, he, he spoke I, I really well. He was very eloquent. He was very posh, wasn't he, too? He talked properly, not like that. 
You know, he's very, very bright young man, yeah. But we had no idea. Who had an idea? You know, everybody who came on the performers, particularly, nobody had got a clue who they were, and they all became famous, huge stars, you know. Very exciting time. Though, I mean, the world tipped on its head. And, and there we were, bang in the middle of it. And like all those things, revolutions, you're actually not aware of what's happening until much later. There have been moments in your own career when, and I'm thinking now as you came out of that first tranche of the chat show, which had been, as I said, when I was introducing your appointment to View Television, you were a big, big star, and you became one of the famous five in 1983 that set up TVAM, which was, to those of us standing by and watching, it was a great, uh, you know, fireworks show. But I imagine if you were in the middle of it, it, it famously, it foundered amid, there seemed to be a lot of infighting, the ratings were poor because it was ill-conceived, what was making it on air, it was very high-minded, what ended up being on air. Yeah, you're partly right. The biggest thing that affected us was the fact that the, uh, uh, the authority delayed uh, our entrance into the marketplace and gave the BBC the first crack. So by the time we got on, they had breakfast television. The BBC had had it for three months or so. And that was the biggest thing of all that I think influenced us. I'm not saying it would have worked because there were, there were problems. There were problems of ego. You can imagine that, that five, weren't you? There were, there were strange things. And when I look back, I, 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 I felt very discontented in the sense that you know, we'd all been so enthusiastic, but we've been too enthusiastic. We've not sat down and really worked it out. And I remember one marvelous moment we were in that egg, eggshell tower, whatever it's called, uh, which was overlooked a canal. And we had, it had big sub windows. And I used to love looking down at the water. And one day I'm standing on the ledge of this window, looking down at the canal below. And I looked to my left, and David Frost was there doing the same thing. And I said to him, who's going to jump first? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what did you learn from it? What did you come out thinking, well, I won't well, ever try that? I, I, I learned a lot about the way that, 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 that corporate bodies work, uh, about people investing, I mean, business people. You know, I, 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 I just was never comfortable with them at all. I couldn't understand what they're saying, for one thing. I just got no idea. And, and then all, it all blew up, you know, when, when, when the girls were sacked and all that stuff. And, I should have left them, but in fact, I, I don't think that the, the, the two women actually ever believed this, but it was true. Uh, I was, I, Mary and I decided I was going to go. I was going to re resign as well. And I had a call then from our chairman, Dick Marsh, and he said, I hear that you're contemplating jumping ship. I said, well, I wouldn't quite put it like that. I said, but you got rid of the two girls. I said, no, I'm not happy too, by the way things are going. I have to tell you, he said, I've just come from the authority, and if you jump ship, then we're all done. They will actually re, uh, reorganize the bids. And I believed him about that. I mean, it was more than a likely possibility, so I stayed on. And I should have gone, I think. And the two women you're referring to, Anna Ford and Anna, Anna Ripon, of and, course. Yeah, and, yeah. And it was, it was, it was sad. And, uh, you yeah, know, there, there were personality conflicts, as you'd expect. But, you know, there, there, were alter, there, were, there were some pleasing parts about it. I, I met Robert Key for the first time, because Robert was part of our famous five. And I, he'd always been one of my heroes, and I used to love talking to him and all that. And David, I had a very, very good friendship with David all, all of my working life, and we became really, really good friends. And, and I felt sorry for him, because it was his ambition. It was him driving it all. And in those days, you know, he was an extraordinarily powerful man in persuading business people to come and invest and all that sort of thing. And if anybody was broken-hearted by what happened, it was David, not I. I went to Australia. I made the best move of my life. Explain something to me. There, you will know this. There are only four people that have ever presented Desert Island Discs. There was Roy Plumley for 43 years. There was Sue Lawley for 18 years. I'm doing it just now. I've been doing it for 10 years. No intention of giving up any time soon. And you only did it for, what, two and a half years? Didn't like it. Tell me, what, tell me why. Why didn't I like it? Why didn't you like it? Well, I'll it? tell you what, you've got a lot to thank me for, actually. <laughs> I mean, there I took over from Plumley, which was not the best uh, news at all, because his, Mrs. Plumley, for some reason, decided to sort of hang on to her husband's memory. Well, I can understand that. But I was this common Yorkshireman who was not able to take over or not understand the, the Plumley project. Well, let's be frank about the Plumley Project. It's a, it's a little radio show which works beautifully because you get people talking about the news that they love, very simple, but they don't let's say it's a work of genius who invented it, for God's sake. 
So there's too much of that veneration going on. And was that going on in the press, or was that said well, to you? Well, they know the press like all that, don't they? Yes. And of course, she was making statements to the press about me, about being too, too North Country for people to understand and all that. Which then I didn't bother with that. I mean, she was a widow, she was green. I understood all that. But, you know, I just, just made it less comfortable. I was also working with people in those, it was done by the music department for BBC. Right. Well, not the current affairs department, like right. it is now. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was a, a strange body of men. I mean, it was, no, but it was. They were nice people, but they were kind of people. You know, when you walk down a corridor and someone comes towards you and they, they go like that in case you touch them. Well, it's full of people like that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope there are none of them here. Uh, <laughs> and I, just generally, I, I, was, I was uncomfortable. And the other thing, too, you see, when I, when I did Desiderand, this with Plumley, I was disappointed. I mean, we went As for, a guest, you know. As a guest. Yeah. We went for a nice meal at the Garrick Club. Then we came back and we sat in a broom cupboard in TV, in, in, in broadcasting house while he interviewed it but didn't play any music. And I said to him, why are you playing the music in? Why should I? I said, because that's why we're here. <laughs> and I said also, too, it's my experience that when I listen to something I love, I think of things that happen, yeah. maybe, you know, and all that. So anyway, it's all that. It was just, it was just so uncomfortable. I, and I, I suppose I became kind of resentful of it. I would have actually had, and I said very early on, this programme should be done by the current affairs department, not the music department. The music, is, the music is chosen by the guests, not by the music department, right? Anybody can do that, for God's sake. And I tended also to change the, I changed the, uh, the nature of the interviewing. I mean, Plumley was a very soft interviewer, mm. gentlemanly soft interviewer. Nothing wrong with that at all. But I just, you know, I thought it was just a good bit of a kick, you know, and I interviewed people properly, I thought, you know, in the way that I could do it, and I couldn't do it any other way. I'd feel phony. And that, again, didn't go down. And so the, the people at BBC in those days was a strange place. I always felt uncomfortable there. I always felt like I didn't belong. Did you? Yeah, in radio particularly. It was, it was run by, by strange people. Um, <laughs> and I, and I, I was just, I suppose that I, <laughs> I suppose, I, I, I might have been, been um, I might have misunderstood the situation. I don't think I did. Um, given that you have worked across, uh, well, not just two channels, I mean, many channels, but let's, let's compare the two big beasts, of it, BBC One and ITV. Uh, would you say that you have, throughout your career, felt more comfortable at ITV? No, and, and it would be unfair to characterise my state the BBC as being unhappy. That's not true. But there were certain aspects of the BBC I always felt an alien in that sense. I felt that I'd never had the right education, that I hadn't had the right accent and all that. I was never made to feel that by the people I worked with. I know people like Fox and people like that. I mean, they were great and supportive, and I learned an awful lot from them. Uh, but I, I, I just had that uneasy feeling. I'd not been to public school. I'd not been to university, all that sort of thing. And you're made to feel that, in a sense. Not overtly, but it seeps into the, into the woodwork, you know? And particularly in radio, the old broadcasting house, all that entrance, all that stuff about broadcasting the world. And then, as I said, you know, specifically that music department, which is full of people who know everything about Johann Sebastian Bach, but <laughs> damn all about me. But I, but I wonder if, and I understand what you're saying. I mean, I walk in those venerated portals <laughs> and I see the busts in bronze of all the great people who've gone before me. And, and like you, you know, I, I started in, in News and Current Affairs and I, I did a lot of uh, newspaper stuff too as I, as I was a young journalist. Haven't been to university, not publicly school educated, but I, but I wonder if you were bringing that with you rather than anybody explicitly no, or even implicitly you, saying it. You to might you. well be true. I mean, it might be that all these years I've carried this huge chip around on my shoulder. It and you are Yorkshireman be, too. And I, 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 be careful, the Yorkshireman too got both shoulders. I know. Yeah, well, that was absolutely. But yeah. uh, no, and I, I, I part of me. I mean, I could never believe that I would get to where I did get. I, I've always had that sense of wonder about it. Well, they're going to find you out tomorrow, you know, and, and you're gone, you're through the door. And then when I was... Has that ever stopped? Because I look, when I look at your... Well, it's not your CV, really, but everything you've ever done, you've had every bloody award going. Has, it, has that ever left you? Have you ever thought, now I belong, now I'm part of this television establishment. I am one of them. I'm no longer the person on the outside. No, I don't do that. I mean, it's lovely to, to have an evening like this in, in your honour. I mean, it's very flattering. And, and, but nonetheless, I, I do have these things about why they want me for. I mean, what's the problem? As, as, as somebody backed out, you'd be knocked down by a bus. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying this just for, for the effect. It's something that's very deep in you. I mean, certainly when I grew up in, uh, in the 1930s, 35, my friend of mining village and my dad, and all that, you know, uh, you're expected to go down the pit. 
And the only reason I didn't go down the pit, because my dad wouldn't have it, basically. My mum wouldn't either. So I became the first Parkinson in 100 years, and male Parkinson, not being down a pit. Now, all that lingers, you know, because I used to see my dad and see how tired he was, and, you know, and he died of pneumoconiosis, one of the problems he had. And, you know, spent a lifetime working underground in foul conditions, and they killed him. And, and you're always sort of looking back at that and thinking, why was that so unfair? And that could have been me, except for, and I escaped. And I always thought I'd been lucky that I escaped, you know. Did he live to see your success? Did, he lived he, he to enjoy it, I have to tell you. My father was a very extraordinary man. He had a great sense of humor. He used to go to movies, and he was once asked to leave the cinema for laughing too loud <laughs> at Laurel and Hardy. He used to fall on the floor, and his legs used to go. Uh, and he loved me dearly, and my mum too, and, and they were a wonderful couple. And we decided the nice thing about the job was when I started earning money that I could kind of try to repay. You could never repay them for what they'd done. Uh, but I thought, no, I said to Mary, very nice. Said, well, let's send them abroad. They'd never been in an airplane. You know, they're in the 50s, 60s. And, and all that. So I got them where they wanted to go. It's Lanzarote or something. I wanted to go. So I find, rang up British Airways, no, BOAC in those days, I suppose. And I chatted to him. I said, look, really look after him. It's the first time I've been in an airplane. And I got a Rolls Royce to arrive in our house or staying with us. And this roller arrived. It was one of those great, monstrous things that had the, the, the compartment, the glass compartment. So my mum gets in the back to the man above. My dad gets in the front with the driver. My <laughs> 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 dad's the latest. He said, oh, I've got to get one of them. It's best right. I need them. Banging away in the window all the way. But anyway, so they've got them to the airport. <laughs> and we, uh, we, we got them, sent them off. And about two weeks later, we went to pick them up, Mary and myself. And I could tell my dad was in trouble. My mother's walk, walking about 20 yards ahead of him. And he's, he's laid up like a pack mule. And she's got this little lamb bag and she's pouted like this when she gets cross. And my dad's lumbering along behind her. And I said, what's the problem? What's the problem? She said, your father. I said, well, what's wrong with my dad? She said, what? He just lets you down. She said, he's, he's, honestly, she said, his behavior is extraordinary. I said, well, what are you talking about? She said, well, if we get on the airplane after you've left us, he said, you go to sit down in first class. Thank you for the first class. I said, five other. He said, and the waiter comes along, the waiter comes along to him and says, would you like a drink? And he said, guess what he said? I said, have you got a pint of bitter? He said, yes. <laughs> so he said, and the steward said, oh, sorry, so we don't serve bitter on this airplane. And he, who'd never flown in his life, said, what kind of airplane is this? <laughs> Brilliant there. She said it was awful. She said, because the guy, no, no, so you don't understand. He said, uh, we can, uh, champagne? But he said, I can't afford champagne, young man. No, sir, it's free. Free, says my father, right. <laughs> my mother said, you know, two hours out of London, he drunk the ship dry. <laughs> she said, and he was so drunk that after he had the meal, he offered to wash up. <laughs> so I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> so drunk. Anyway, so that's my father. I mean, that was my dad, you know, and, and we were able to, look after him in that sense, and my mother too, and, and let them see another life. And, and my dad met all his old heroes, John Crawford, Bette Davis, did and all he? that. Oh, well, you should see him with them. I mean, it's wonderful. Hello. Oh, did he? <laughs> oh, a bit of that, you know, the old Yorkshire charm, yeah. So, you know, I, again, going back to the, what we're talking about, you never lose that sense that, you know, why, why them and why me? Why did he live underground yes. all his life, and why didn't I? And was there any more you could have done for it? The, I mean, the, the, the images of my, my youth are all about that. I remember the pit ponies used to bring them up every June, I think it was, and give them a holiday. And, a, and we had a field outside our house. And they, they would uh, be blind, of course, uh, those that weren't a very bad eyesight. So they bandaged their eyes. And they, this was their holiday in the sub. And they would run around the field, crashing into it like dodging cars. Huh. And I used to think, look at that and think, well, if they're doing that to them, what about my dad? <laughs> mm. But, I mean, all those things, I mean, you can't shake them off. No matter where you go, yes. it's there. It sticks. So it makes you less sure, less, less confident, in a sense, about what happens to you. It doesn't mean to say I'm frightened. It doesn't mean to say any of those things. But it, makes, it, makes you, it is to say you don't quite believe your luck. And is that still there? Hmm. I hope it remains. Because I have been lucky. I mean, I came into television at the best possible time. I went into journalism when Fleet Street was still around. What a place that was, like Dodge City. It was wonderful, vigorous, and, you know, red-blooded, wonderful. When you watch, I, I don't know, I don't even know if, if you do watch 
the shows now that have replaced your type of show. And, and to me, they are, you know, they are hugely popular and very, very well produced. But there's no question they are not chat shows in the traditional sense that you and I might consider yes, a chat show. They, they are entertainment shows. Uh, exactly. And very good, too. Some of them. I mean, Graham Norton's show is a wonderfully produced show. And he's very good at that. Excellent. It's the one I, I really like watching. But they're not talk shows as such. They're, they're comedy shows. And that's going right back to where it started in America. You know, they're all done by comedians, uh, Carson being the most preeminent among them. And so they never didn't ever do a kind of show that, that I did. Dick Cabot maybe did for, for a while. But, you know, um, that's the way it is. And it's not the fault of anybody except the people who run television now. Look at the viewing figures, look at the, 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 the demographic and see that what they're aiming for is an audience much lower than the one that I had or aimed for. And that's the big deciding factor, I think, across all television now, is that. If you were, I mean, it, it is such an entirely different landscape, and, and you've, you've explained it so very well there. But if you were, I don't know if there's anybody in tonight's uh, audience who is just starting out, but mm. uh, when people, when young people ask you for advice about television, what do you tell them? What pearls of wisdom do you pass on? Well, I mean, it seems to me, and it's a very old-fashioned view, I know, but I don't know about these media courses they have nowadays. I mean, I was at Nottingham Trent University, the Chancellor, there for a while, and we had a big media course. And it seemed to me that a lot of young people were there because they fancied it was a way on to, I'm a celebrity, get me out of there, you know, that sort of thing. They want to be famous. And you but had, you said you wanted to be. You wanted to be oh, a movie star. But yeah, I've, been, I've, been, I've been in business about 20 years then. I mean, I was, I was allowed to. I'd looked at people being famous, and I can do that. Uh, but they, these are, they're convinced by things like, I'm a celebrity, get me out of it. That's their idea of fame. Or, you know, that instant frame, fame which makes you a, a hero on the internet. You know, that sort of fame. It's a different thing altogether. Well, you know, I mean, fame is a very strange thing. And, and you've got to be mature enough to handle it. I mean, that's a bit off of what we're talking about, I know. You, but I mean, I think what I, I mean, my, my, my sympathy, and, and I have a great deal of sympathy for young people nowadays who want to do the job that I've done all my life, is that I don't quite see where the openings are for them. Yes. I don't see that there's the newspapers around, I don't see the, tele the television has changed so much now that they require a different person than the one that I became, trading my way as a true junior reporter and then been shown the ropes by people who actually knew what they were doing in television. You know, I'm now, I left school at 16 and walked straight into a newspaper office and said, I want a job. I said, sit down there, see that guy over there, go and work with him for three years, and at the end of it, we'll give you a proper job. And that was an apprenticeship. Can't do it nowadays. When we watched that um, brilliant clip of Orson Welles uh, ruminating mm -hmm. on what Hollywood does to yes. people and what the, the whole movie industry had done to people, yes. I'm thinking about, you, you know, you have come very, very close, and okay, most of these people, why would they? They didn't become your friends, but you saw them at close quarters. Mm. You saw fame in the mm. 20th and 21st century. Mm. What, what did you learn about fame and what it does to people when you were meeting these great, bright, shining stars? I think that the, the ones I really liked were the ones who could do their job without being overweening about what they had. I mean, if you talk about Wells, or you talk about genius, if you talk about Billy, you talk about genius. They carried their, their, generally speaking, the ones I really admired, they carried their, their great gifts effortlessly. But more than that, they were very generous with it, too. They, they gave an awful lot to make you laugh or to make you think or wherever it might be. And I just think that we're, that we're privileged to have the position where we could call up anybody anywhere in the world and say, we'd like to interview them. They might just say yes. And if you don't learn anything from that total experience, then you, there's something wrong with you. But there's no overall picture. It's just that, that wonderful thing of being able to listen to talent, to wisdom, to funny guys and women. I mean, it's just that. It's that totality of things. And to deal with the best all the time. And, and that's, you know, you just do it and you hope that something rubs off on you. What did you learn about yourself? The, the, the thing I'm most proud of, um, if I were to be really honest about, about things, is, is that I can write. I loved writing, and I love writing still. And I think that's the thing I'm, I'm most proud of. Uh, I had nothing to do, I was, I, was, I, I, could, I was gifted. I could write, I was a, at school, I used to write other kids' essays for sixpence and make a fortune. I could write five a night. I, I could write on top of a bus. I had a mate called John Stoddard. He was a maths genius. I'm used to maths. One, one year I came top of maths and he came top of English. 
and he couldn't spell and I couldn't add up, so there's something <laughs> wrong there. So that, 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 I've, I've always been pleased. And I've been pleased that whenever television didn't want me, and there have been times when, you know, there have been those periods where you get a job doing some show you didn't want to do, but you didn't, couldn't get a job doing what you wanted to do. I went back to writing, and, and, and I earned a living through that, and I enjoyed it. And I always say to any young person who's going, get some back. If you're going to write, never lose that, please. Keep at it. And so when you didn't get the commissions or the contracts came to an end and nobody was waving another one in your face, did it hit you hard? Or was no. writing always the... No, because the, the, I had the confidence I could get a job as writing. Right. And, and, I, and I did that. And it's a great consolation, though, because you never then get into that depressed state where, oh, yes. nobody wants me anymore, all that nonsense, you know. Go and write, you know, enjoy yourself, you know, do that. And then, of course, I went to Australia. It's been terribly important in my life because I had a wonderful time there. I love Australia. It's my second uh, home. And all your programs were shown over oh, in Australia. Were. The British programs no, were. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very hard to arrive there. Because after a long and terminable journey, and you walk out, and the first thing you see is, good day, Paco, how are you going? <laughs> and you think, oh, what? How do you know me? Well, he knows you through television, of course. Um, in about 30 seconds, we're going to go to the audience for just a couple of questions, because we are running a little bit late. I've got my quick-fire questions mm. here. Sure. These are very quick. You just Sometimes one word, two word answers. Here we go, you ready? Yorkshire tea or double espresso? Yorkshire tea. <laughs> a football match or a boxing bout? Boxing. Oh. Loose women or Mar on Sunday? Mar on Sunday. <laughs> I know the answer to this one, but it makes me laugh anyway. Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley? <laughs> no contest. <laughs> All blue eyes. Broadsheet or news blog? Broadsheets. Rod Hallanemu or Meg Ryan? <laughs> I'd have to think about that one. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's open it up to the audience. Does anybody have a question for Sir Michael? Here we go, just at the back there. Thank you. Just wanted to say I've been watching you since I was a kid, and you're definitely one of my heroes. I work as a producer director at BBC. I just wanted to ask you, who are three of your heroes, and how have they inspired you, please? If you who, don't mind me asking. Who are my heroes? Three of yeah, your three heroes. Three of your heroes, and how have they inspired you, Three please? of my heroes. Ernest Hemingway. I always wanted to be Hemingway, to write like Hemingway. I started reading Hemingway when I was about seven or eight, and always wanted to be like him. Not to top myself in the end, of course, but he was a great influence on my life. I, I loved American novelists, so he would be one. Um, George Best was a, was a hero of mine. I mean, deeply flawed in many, many ways, but I loved him like a son, in a sense. You know, he was a... A lovely man, Michael, my son's here tonight, my youngest boy. When George used to come down to the house, he used to get away from the invading hordes of press in Manchester. He would play with the kids, he'd bring a bag of balls down and play with them all. I remember many years ago, Michael came back from school in a terrible state because he'd been gone to school on a Monday after Saturday, George had been down. And the teacher said, what do you do at the weekend? He went around the class. <laughs> he said, I played football with George Best. <laughs> and they made him stand up for the rest of this other time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and who else? Uh, oh, there's a woman called Catherine Bramwell Booth, who was the granddaughter of the founder of the Salvation Army, who we came across uh, when she won the Speaker of the Year Award, and she was 94, I think. And she was the most wonderful, feisty, funny woman I've ever met. She was marvelous. And I unwittingly made a, a joke which involved the use of the word bet, having a bet. And she picked me up on this about, you're not a betting, you're not a gambling man, are you? And she had a Pope bonnet on. And the next five minutes, I have never floundered as much in all my life. <laughs> I've never been so beautifully and elegantly destroyed <laughs> by this woman in a Pope bonnet who went on to live to be 104 and was one of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my life. She was a hero. Yeah. Wonderful. What mm. a lovely answer. Thank you very much, Michael. Is there anybody who you wish you had have interviewed who you never got round to interviewing? The, the, only, the only person I, I really missed was, was, was the aforesaid Frank Sinatra. I mean, I could think of another huge list as well, but you tend to never to sort of think about that, you know. 
We weren't turned down by too many people that, that we asked. Uh, but the, the ones that really I would have loved to have talked to would have been people from another era, you know, Garland and Pierre. And I'd love to have talked to W.G. Grace and things like that, you know, and the impossible ones and find out about them. And so really, no, I mean, I, we, we mopped up most of those that, uh, that, that we wanted, that we required. I mean, it's a long stint, you know, it's 20 odd years. And, and you can see just one or two, and that's, that's just a few, you know. Uh, no, I mean, I, I've been very lucky that way, very lucky. And I don't look back with any kind of, with nostalgia, certainly, but I don't look back with any sense of regret. Well, I wish, you know, I don't do that. Hello. Um, whatever made you bring together the great classical musician Yehudi Menuhin with the jazz musician Stefan Grappelli? What, what well, drew you to do that? <laughs> yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? They, they, we had booked a uh, Menuhin uh, for, for an interview, and uh, my researcher went up to his home in Hampstead and noticed when he was waiting in the study, on the study desk, there was a, a CD of, of, of Stefan Grappelli lying there. Uh, and so when Manuel came in the room, he asked him, he said, are you a fan? No, he said, no, nothing about him, really. I've been sent this. And so he came back to the research and he said, listen, he said, I think that this might be a chance to get them together. And so I, I we called him up and said, look, will you listen to Think, Do you think you could join uh, Mr. Grappelli and Annie called back and said, "Love to meet him," and that's how it happened. And and we we <laughs> we rang Stefan and said, "Look, you know, would you like to?" Oh, I cannot go. Oh, you know, he's a classical musician. I'm a fiddle player. <laughs> Come on, I said, "Yeah, I can't read music," you know, and he couldn't. You know, but eventually we got them together and we arranged for him to go up to Hampstead to meet Menuhin, and he was like a child. He was shivering with 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 fear. I can't, you know, I mean, he's a great maestro. Anyway, so he goes up there, and, and they came back, and now this very childlike step, and a wonderful, huge smile on his face. And we said, how did it go? How did it go? He said, tell me, tell you. He said, five bars into Lady of Good, who's the maestro? <laughs> <laughs> he was, of course, but he, it was interesting to see them work, because uh, there's no way that, that, uh, that Menion could work out. He couldn't, he couldn't, Improvise in, in that sense, no, make it swing. I could improvise in a sense that he learned out in classical music as well, but it didn't have that, that rhythm. And so to watch the two of them, watch, we're listening to, to Grappelli, Grappelli telling him how to play, you know, it was wonderful. And they made five records, I think, more maybe, and they had a lifelong friendship. They were extraordinary. It was just one of those wonderful, silly coincidences that you pick up on all of a sudden. You have two great musicians playing together from entirely different worlds. Magnificent. That was a wonderful question. Thank you very much. I want to thank the audience for some great questions, but most of all, Sir Michael, I want to thank you, not just for tonight, but for all of the considerable pleasure that you have given us all over the decades in a matchless career. Thank you so much for your brilliance. Thank you, Kirsten. I've enjoyed thank it. You. Thank you very much. Michael Parkinson. You are free to go. Hey, there we go. Hey.